Good day. Today's episode deals with one of the major financing instruments that the World Bank uses to support developing economies. Development policy financing, also known as policy-based lending, is a fast-dispersing instrument that provides non-earmarked funds to a country's national budget. Many of you may be familiar with the prominent role Development Policy Operations, or DPOs, have played in the World Bank's recent response to the COVID pandemic. While often used counter-cyclically to offset the fiscal impact of economic downturns, DPOs are also used outside the context of crises to support longer-term reform. So how does this instrument work, and how successful has it been in achieving its various objectives? Welcome to What Have We Learned from the World Bank Group's Independent Evaluation Group, IEG. I'm your host, Jeff Chelsky, and today we'll be discussing the lessons learned from the World Bank's experience with policy-based lending. With me in the studio is Stéphane Guimbert, Director of Operations Policy at the World Bank. Stéphane, bonjour. Thanks for having me. So, let's start. Development policy financing differs in important ways from lending for traditional bricks-and-mortar investment projects. Can you explain to our listeners what a World Bank DPO is and how it's used to help developing economies achieve their development objectives? Thanks, Jeff. I think you almost gave the answer, uh, which is to focus on achieving the government's uh, development objectives. So it's really where it starts from, looking at what the government wants to achieve. And often what we've learned in development is that this is not just about building bridges or financing cash transfers. It's about making policy and institutional changes. So essentially that's what those development policy operations support. In that way they are different from the other instruments. This is an instrument that is supporting a set of in policy and institutional changes that the government wants to implement could be changing the tax code, could be reforming electricity tariffs so that the sector is more sustainable and, and creates incentive uh, toward the cleaner suits of energy, could be changing the coverage of a social protection scheme. It, it could really be in all sorts of, of sectors, but focused on actions that the government um, takes to change its policy strengthen its its institution. That's a lesson we've learned in development. Development is not just about building new infrastructure, as important as that is. It's also about evolving institutions and and policies. Just to clarify for listeners, when when you talk about a DPO having an action, so we're talking about prior actions, so this will be a specific reform or something that the government needs to do in order to be eligible to receive the money? So those um, pro-actions are a critical part of a broader reform agenda that the government owns and and has decided. And the disbursement of this operation is based on on the achievement of of those actions. So in the area of climate, it it could be phasing out a a fossil fuel subsidy, it could be introducing a a tax on on carbon, The, the range of potential actions that are in government's program is is pretty wide. Now, one feature of DPOs that's often not well understood is that the financing provided does not go directly to finance the reforms supported by the operation. Uh, Money goes into a central treasury or budget account and is not earmarked for any of the particular purposes or sectors, even when the prior actions that are required to obtain approval for disbursements are concentrated in a particular sector. 
this seems a bit counterintuitive. Can you explain the rationale for not linking financing to the reforms that the operation is intended to support? Uh, how can the bank be sure that the reforms supported by the DPO's prior actions will be sustained once the country has received the money? Yeah, these are two, two very good questions. I think you call them counterintuitive because they differ from the way we traditionally think of projects. Again, we, we think of projects as financing a bridge, a road, a, a dam. And, and if you think it that way, uh, you can cost the physical infrastructure that, that you're financing. Development policy operation is very different. It's, it's supporting a set of policy and institutional changes within a fiscal framework, within a broader budget, and in an environment where we, we believe the, the macroeconomic framework is adequate. So you, you cannot really cost the value of a particular change. In fact, often the strength of a development policy operation is not the sum of each of the pro-action, it's actually the combination and the interaction between the different actions that the government is, is taking. So it would be quasi-impossible to try and, and, and cost them. So that's why we're really th not thinking of the amount in, in a development policy operation as the cost of the actions, but it's part of a program that the, the bank is supporting and, and that the budget is uh, financing. So that's for your first question on uh, why aren't we uh, linking directly financing reforms uh, in, in the operation. The second question is also a very important one, the systemity question, essentially. Let's change example. If you think big building a school, you will think about sustainability as um, will the physical building stay up? Will the teachers uh, come to teach? Will there be material for teaching? In a development policy operation, it's all about these policy and institutional actions. And, and the question is, uh, will these actions be sustained over time, and will they deliver the development outcomes in a, in a sustainable manner over time? I think here, the two part to the answers. One is that we tend to prefer doing these operations in a programmatic way. By this, we mean instead of doing only one operation, supporting uh, today one set of actions, we like to think of these operations as a series of operations supporting a first set of action this year and maybe a second set next year and maybe a third set in, in two years. And, and if you think about this change process in a way, in a more programmatic sense, this is likely to increase the sustainability of the reforms. The other part of the answer, which in a way is, is connected, is to not think of those operations in, in isolation, but to th see them as part of a broader engagement that the bank, but typically in partnership with the IMF or the MDBs or the partners, a sustained engagement where before we even considered the development policy operation, we worked um, with the government thinking through reform priorities, how to design those policy um, and institutional changes. And then after the, the development policy operation, after those actions are taken, continued engagement through, again, analytical work or technical assistance or in sometimes some other form of financing. But it's part of the judgment toward thinking whether this is a good operation. Do we believe the policy and institutional changes that are being supportive are, are sustainable? Now, the World Bank recently published the 
development policy financing retrospective, uh, which I understand reviews trends and performance of DPOs approved over the last five years. Now, in the report, you highlight a number of strengths of the instrument in supporting countries as they implement policy and institutional reforms. Can you summarize some of the key findings of the retrospective, including lessons for future use of policy-based lending? Sure, very happy to. It's a very important exercise, actually, those retrospective. It's a kind of stock-taking exercise we do every couple of years. So it, it's building on, on a lot of accumulated experience. It's just a kind of housekeeping of reviewing the instrument. Is it working as, as intended? Are we using it that we think is, is most optimal? Ov- overall, it's a report. You, you can access it. It confirms it's a very effective instrument, as I said, supporting policies and institutional reform is at the core development, and that, that's our key instrument to do this, and, and it's in high demand from the countries we are, we are aiming at supporting. So overall, the basic finding is to confirm fit for purpose of the policy and to document how we've been using the instrument over the past five years. And then at each of these uh, retrospective, we drill down on topics that we believe are of particular relevance at the time we do the retrospective. So kind of obviously this time we focus on crisis response. DPOs, and I think you mentioned that in your uh, initial introduction, we use DPOs um, all the time, not just in crisis, but they play a particular role during crisis response because they can provide a quick liquidity to governments at a time where they badly need it. So, so that's, that's extremely helpful. It's not a pure liquidity support, and that's something we review also in the retrospective. It, it's a good time to support difficult choices, difficult policy changes that uh, governments are, have to make in the middle of a crisis. Uh, so during COVID, a lot of those uh, were in the health sector, obviously, but also in expanding social safety nets. Uh, there were quite a, f- a few tax breaks and other SME-targeted policy measures. So we confirmed the DPO is a critical instrument for crisis response. Perhaps what is more new over the past couple of years, and in particular for this crisis, is that we had introduced quite a few years ago something we call, I'm, I'm going to use one acronym, I haven't used too many so far. So we use CAT DDOs. So CAT, uh, it's, it's an easy acronym, CAT for catastrophe, uh, DDO for deferred drawdown. So wh- what it means is that it's a development policy operation, same set of reforms that you support, but instead of disbursing the amount that is committed immediately, you set it aside and the country can call on that amount when there is a, a disaster striking. And, and we had done a lot of those over the past couple of years. And just in the first couple of weeks when COVID hit, the countries were able to immediately draw down on those resources. And this, this has proven a very effective tool, in particular because the, the policy actions that typically those countries will have taken in advance are all about crisis preparedness. And, and I think, unfortunately, we've, we've learned with COVID that uh, the, the world is not where we should be in terms of crisis preparedness. So one, one first set of recommendations of the retrospective is actually to further the use of these uh, particular form of, of development policy operations. So that, that's one big set of recommendations. The other is to look at a number of aspects of what at the bank we call the grid, the green, green, resilient, inclusive development. How after COVID in particular, after a crisis, you make sure the recovery is green, resilient and inclusive. 
In terms of resilience, we, we looked in particular at the use of this instrument for countries that have debt vulnerabilities. This is uh, unfortunately again proving a challenge for a number of, of countries, AIDA countries in particular. And so development policy operations can be very helpful instruments in, in that area to support countries that are increasing their revenues, making their uh, debt contracts and debt accounts more transparent, streamlining some of the subsidies uh, on the expenditure side. So that, that's one set of recommendations about the use of development policy operations for fiscal and debt-related issues. On the growth side, we look at DPOs that are supporting reforms to enable the private sector to grow. And we believe there's a potential to do more. There's a lot of debate at the moment in the development aid community how to mobilize more private capital. And that's a very important discussion, but the most important part of that discussion is how to reform countries' business enabling environment so that they are more attractive to private sector and development policy operations have a big role to play there. Third area we, we look at in terms of inclusion is on how we can further the use of development policy operations for gender. The, the tool has been used for a lot of important policy reforms in the gender area, but we, we've observed some very promising and interesting innovations and, and improvements, for instance, in an, an operation in Albania to further the agenda on gender equality, looking at areas like uh, gender-based violence, the leadership of, of women in government and corporate governance, areas that maybe were less the focus uh, of earlier gender-focused operations. And the last area where we are making recommendation is on climate change. A lot of the action that's necessary on climate change is on the policy and institutional side. It's, it's not only about new solar and, 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 and wind turbines. It's also making some changes on the institutional and, and policy side. And we've already seen a, a big improvement. Only five years ago, at the beginning of the retrospective, only a fraction of the development policy operations had anything to do with climate change. Our last fiscal year, we had 96 or 97 percent of, of DPOs that had at least one action on climate change. So only having one action is certainly not sufficient and not where we want to end, but it, it shows already we're moving in the right direction and, and we have potential to use the instrument uh, some more. Now, I want to go back to what you were talking about when you were talking about crisis preparedness. IEG recently did an evaluation of uh, World Bank Group's support for addressing country-level fiscal and financial sector vulnerabilities. Um, and this report concluded that the World Bank makes more effective use of DPOs and other bank instruments uh, when responding to an economic crisis than in strengthening institutions that contribute to longer-term resilience and crisis preparedness outside of the context of, of a crisis. The, the old expression, uh, never let a crisis go to waste, I guess that's, that's sort of what it was reflecting. How would you respond to this assessment? Are DPOs less effective at longer-term institution building than as counter-cyclical macroeconomic support? No, is the short answer. I do agree, though, that whether it's this instrument or other instrument, as, as you said, never let a good uh, crisis uh, go, 
in terms of policy making and and focus uh, crisis do focus the attention so uh, often a lot of these actions are taken at the moment of crisis. So I, I do agree that DPOs have a particular role uh, to play in crisis response, although I want to be quite clear that um, this is one of the many areas where we need to remember the respective roles of the different institutions. So DPOs have a clear role to play, and, and they do play a, a somewhat counter-cyclical role, but that's also an area where we work very closely with the IMF, uh, who, who in the international financial architecture has the, the lead role in, in counter-cyclical financing. Um, the, the other point I'd make is that, in particular during the COVID response, we've seen that there are many other tools and, and types of projects that are critical for crisis response. So the obvious example that's most directly related to COVID are the health projects uh, initially to finance protective equipment and, and, and later to finance vaccine. Those were very fast acting, providing very uh, quick support targeted to the source of the crisis. The other part is, is social protection schemes. More countries today have social protection schemes than 15 years ago. And so, and the bank is engaged with a lot of countries supporting social uh, protection schemes. And, and we were able uh, very quickly to scale up some of those projects and in particular target to those that were most vulnerable during the, the COVID crisis. So, so the point here is that DPOs play an important role, but they are not the only crisis tool in, in the bank's toolkit in the way we support countries in response to crisis. Now, I completely res uh, understand how uh, countries in crisis, whether or not it's COVID or a collapse in commodity prices and, and revenue dries up or expenditure increases, so the money is very attractive. How do you decide which of the country's many reform priorities you're going to support with that DPO? So there are multiple um, dimensions to, to this, uh, but maybe the one I emphasize most is a point I made earlier on, on the continuity of engagement. So we're going to primarily focus in areas where we've been engaged. We don't come cold on things we don't really understand. You know, the governments have uh, reform programs that are way bigger than, than the World Bank can engage with. So we really focus on the areas where we believe we can bring some value addition and, and we're engaged on a sustained basis. And, and the other, again, it, it's this point about ownership. We, we don't choose the projections. We engage where we believe there's a strong demand as articulated by our counterparts in the government. This is interesting because it relates to a, a recommendation that is, as I do some self-promotion, has come up in a couple of IG evaluations, uh, one on public financial and debt management and another on uh, the sustainable development finance policy, which talks about the importance of having in place the analytics and the diagnostics so that when a crisis um, occurs, you know which sort of reforms should be the priority. Maybe if I, if I can just oh, yes. chip in on, on, on that, uh, you, you'll see in this retrospective, since you're doing self-promotion, I might as well, you'll see a, a short section on this. But, but in fact, if you look at pretty every of our uh, retrospective on DPOs, the quality of the analytical underpinnings is 
consistently a driver of the success in, in those operations. And, and in fact, we, we make it a point in every program document of those operations to, to document the analytical underpinnings. Now, I do admit that in, in crisis response, you might have to act on areas where you have actually slightly less analytical underpinnings. But as a general point, fully agree with uh, this finding uh, about the quality of analytics behind those operations. Now, at the IEG, we regularly assess and rate the extent to which DPOs achieve their objectives. Uh, in your opinion, how do you know when a DPO has been successful? In fact, what does good look like when it comes to uh, DPOs? Um, great question as well. You've picked up the theme of my answers by now, like for other projects, which is start with the development outcomes that you're trying to achieve and then choose which instrument fits better for that. And so a good DPO is one that achieves those development objectives. Now, of course, this is all about long-term development, so it might take some time before you know whether you're achieving your objective. So some kind of rule of thumbs as we review those DPOs when we prepare them. One is the relevance of the actions that are supported. A a good DPO will focus on issues that matter for the country and will have substantive actions and typically, as we just discussed, backed up by a fair bit of analysis. So that first point on, on relevance The second is also echoing some of what we've discussed before on sustainability. I think that's one of the most difficult judgment call, I think in development in general, but in DPOs in in particular, the likelihood of of what you're supporting today to be sustainable over the medium term. Quality of, of a sustained engagement is a good indicator. Quality of, of consultation, so typically governments would consult through their own mechanisms around those reforms and, and knowing that you have a diverse set of groups who support those actions or if there are some downsides that the government is taking action to mitigate any downside, all this gives us reassurance about the, the sensibility. And then last part of a good DPO, uh, we haven't talked too much about it, but it's critical because of the nature of the instrument supporting an entire budget is being conf- confident that there's an adequate macroeconomic uh, framework. Now, the DPO has evolved considerably over the last 20 years. Uh, previously, budget support operations were largely used for countries with more developed institutional structures and, and governance. But today, and even before the COVID pandemic, uh, we see budget support operations being increasingly undertaken in lower capacity countries, including many fragile states. And the commitment value of many of these operations has actually increased significantly with the average size of a DPO in in fragile situations having tripled between the first and second halves of the last decade. And as the retrospective notes, the share of development policy finance in total IDA commitments has increased significantly over the last five years. Uh, Has this been an intentional evolution? And if so, what has changed in the bank's assessment of the suitability of DPOs for lower income countries and countries in fragile situations? So that's a good question. We believe this is an instrument that is relevant to all types of countries. 
I believe a lot of them reflect a broader shift of, of the entire focus of the institution toward uh, fragile and, and, and conflict states. In particular, in IDA, FCV has been a theme for several replenishments now. And not only it's been a theme and, and a matter of, of qualitative attention, but also quantitatively, there's been an increase in, in resources allocated to those countries. You're right that in addition, we've tried to learn how to make DPOs in, in those uh, countries as relevant as possible. So we try to be as selective as possible in terms of the actions that we support. We try perhaps even more in FCV than other countries to ensure that when they support at one point of time for a set of actions, it's preceded and followed by support and, and engagement for the implementation. So if I understand, in a fragile or low-capacity country, we're more likely to see DPOs being accompanied by other bank lending and operations than we would in, in higher-income countries. That's correct. Very often, it is helpful to provide also the technical assistance that will help the implementation. Often, those policy institutional actions are laws, decrees. They are critical to the change process, but they need to be followed through. Often, that, that requires dedicated support. Last question, and hopefully it's not the most difficult. So... When we look over at the IMF, the, the size of an IMF program is linked to country-specific quota, which is calculated using an agreed formula based on the country's relative economic size and some other uh, factors. The World Bank has no such, well, as far as I understand, the World Bank has no such benchmark for determining the size of an operation. Um, how do you decide how much financing to lend to a country as part of a DPO? Uh, is there any link between the size of the DPO and the ambition of any of the reforms uh, it's required to implement as, uh, as, as a prior action? Yeah, good question. And um, I'll refer you again to the retrospective. There's some, some analysis on, on this. So we do not cost reform. We don't have a formula. But we use a number of the points that you, you, you made in, in the judgment. So certainly we look at the budget framework. So we look at the financing requirements within that budget framework. That By this, I mean the government's budget framework. So that that's one of the criteria that we look at. We also look at the availability of alternative sources of financing, the availability of, of our own resources, whether IDA or BID, because from for both for the country team and for the authorities, there's a, usually a trade-off. There's a set envelope, and the more is set on a, on a DPO, the less you will have for, for some other projects. That's the spirit. That's the guidelines. If you look at exposed, the analytical work, you, you'll see that, obviously, the size of the country plays a role. There is an empirical link with the size of the financing needs, so that, that we, we can see. And, and indeed, the strength of the operation will play a part. And one way to think about that is if a very strong operation typically is the culmination of a lot of effort from the broader bank engagement, and therefore, quite naturally, a higher proportion of the resources available for the country will then be dedicated to, to the DPO. So in, in short, you know, all the points you raise are factored in those decisions, but there's no formula or mechanical way to derive the amount of a particular DPO. 
Now, we're just about out of time. So first of all, I want to thank you for what I consider remarkable restraint in your use of acronyms. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. The reports mentioned in this conversation can be found on the IEG website at ieg.worldbankgroup.org slash podcast. You could listen to more conversations on that same website or on any major podcast platform. Once again, I'd like to thank Stéphane Guimbert, um, our guest, for uh, sharing his views and experience with DPOs. Uh, this has been What Have We Learned from the Independent Evaluation Group. What global development topics would you like us to explore in future episodes? Let us know at ieg at worldbank.org. Stay curious and ciao.